Twice, right? Okay. All right, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So I'm not allowed to wander around for the sake of the recording. So if I seem a little stationary this week, I'm going to do my best. Um, There are many things in life that we talk about, but we don't actually do. Uh, I like to read about healthy eating. Um, I... I am convinced that I would be happier and healthier if I ate better. I know that sugar is bad for me. I believe that. I think we've been lied to uh, by the sugar. Big sugar, I think, is having a a tremendous effect on our lives. Um, And uh, I, I even have practical experience with eating things and regretting it uh, many times in my life. But when I'm really hungry, all bets are off. Uh, If I'm starving and all there is is a McDonald's, I will go to that McDonald's and I will order whatever presents itself. And then I will order something to be able to eat while I'm waiting to eat whatever I ordered (laughs) and have it many times. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I have no capacity for moderation when it comes to chewy, fruity candies. I will eat whole bags. Um, I, I cannot stop myself. I, can, I cannot start, but once I start, I cannot stop eating that. And nutritional theory at that point might as well be Sanskrit. Like I have, I have no understanding of that. Um, and, and the bottom line is, I, and I know this, even as we try to, to feed our children and eat healthy, healthy eating take, takes more work, it takes more preparation, uh, it costs more money, um, and, and so sometimes it comes down to what, what am I willing to invest? Where am I willing to invest? And so when it comes to the church, I think we're really good at theorizing in the church, and we talk a lot, especially right now, like we've all been talking a lot about church stuff as we start to to gather together, and we're talking about what does Jesus expect from his church? One of the things we're trying to do as a leadership team, and I want to invite y'all into this, but we're trying to actually read the New Testament, and what is it that Jesus says we should be doing together? You know, because a lot of churches, they say, well, what do we want to do? Or what do people expect us to do? Or what is the church down the road doing? Rather than just going to the scripture and saying, what does Jesus actually want us to do? And I, I, would, I would invite you to join that. Read the New Testament. Read the letters of Paul. Read Jesus' writings. Come and share the things you discover that we should be doing together. But we can talk about that all day long. And if we don't put it into practice, there is no benefit. And I would say that many, many churches just talk and they have good intentions, but good intentions are not obedience to Christ. And so one glaring area where churches often talk the talk, uh, but they don't necessarily walk the walk, is church discipline. Um, So church discipline is, it's all over the New Testament I think there are very few who would deny that it is in the, the, the Bible and that it should be practiced, but very few churches actually practice what they preach in this regard. So if you've been with us for the past four weeks in 2 Corinthians, it should be no surprise to you 
that Paul would hit this topic because there's been chaos in the church at Corinth. People have been assaulting his character. There's clearly been sin in the church. He wrote a severe letter. We've talked about that several times, this severe letter that he wrote, um, and, and it contains some hard instructions. And so it seems like from our passage this morning that Paul wrote them these instructions, and the Corinthians actually did what he asked them to do. So these false teachers are trying to discredit Paul, and they're trying to discredit his gospel message. And it actually seems, and we'll see this in just a minute, that one member in particular has been called out for his behavior. And Paul has written to the church and said how he expects for them to deal with this person. Now, the simplest teaching, and I know we covered this a few weeks ago when we were talking about hope and some vision type things, but the, the simplest teaching, I would say, in the Bible found on church discipline is, is Matthew 18. It's very common. Um, let, let me read it to you. You can turn there if you want, but it's a familiar passage, and I'll just I'll read it aloud. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's that's so interesting. You know, even there, the the goal is to gain your brother. That's the goal. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. We talked about that before. It doesn't say tell it to the elders. It doesn't say tell it to the domination. It says tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And it's really important, too. We need to remember, church discipline is the entire process. It's not just the act of treating somebody like a a Gentile and a tax collector. So if a church practices church discipline, most discipline should be just one brother or sister going to another brother or sister. And ideally, y'all, in most church discipline, most of us never know about it. I mean, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. A church that practices church discipline has discipline going on all the time, and we don't know about it because it's just taking place. One brother goes to another brother. That brother repents. This brother forgives. And we don't talk about that anymore. Am I loud? Okay. Um, Okay, so most church discipline ends right there. So what I think happened here from what we're going to see in the text is the Corinthians followed the steps. They followed the path of church discipline. And then as we're going to see in our passage, they go all the way to the path, to the part of telling it to the church. And then even more surprising, get this, the brother repents, all right? And, and, and I, I mean, how many churches don't practice church discipline because they really don't think it's going to work? They really just can't imagine that this prescription that Jesus has given us is going to actually work. But whatever part he plays in the mess, he confesses, he repents, he forgives. So what's even more difficult than practicing church discipline? What do you do now? So now you've got this guy who has behaved badly, who has hurt Paul, who has hurt the body, What do you do if he repents? How do you restore that individual? 
And that's really hard. See, it's easy to talk about healthy eating when you're not hungry, right? Well, it's hard to think about restoring a brother when you've been hurt, all right? So we can all talk right now. It's one thing for us right now to talk about restoring brothers and sisters. It's something else entirely to actually forgive someone and restore them when they've hurt us deeply. And so that's the, that's the subject that Paul is going to be talking about here in this passage, okay? So I've got six instructions. We're going to go uh, verses 5 through 11 today. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing to you first. And then we'll start walking through it. We're going to see six instructions that Paul gives us for how to restore a repentant brother or sister. So let's look at, at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you have forgiven, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. All right, so verse five, the first thing we need to do in order to restore a sinning brother, to prepare ourselves, and, and y'all, I want you, okay, maybe, maybe for some of you, this is gonna be a, a, a major conviction today, what I'm gonna read, okay? But probably for most of us, this is, this is theoretical, okay? But the history of the church and the scriptures and human nature would, would argue that sooner or later, we as a church could be faced with a situation like this, okay? And so we, we need to remember this passage. We need to think about these things now for how we would respond if one in our midst offended us or some individual in this church deeply and then repented and then needed to be restored, Okay, so that's what we're thinking about this morning, all right? So as we go through that, remember that if it all seems kind of theoretical right now. Okay, so first of all, number one, realize the scope of the offense. Realize the scope of the offense. Verse five, now if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. All right, so undoubtedly, there would have been some in the Corinthian church who were offended on Paul's behalf. And so Paul, we've seen, we know that he agonized over the church. He's, he is, he's writing this letter because he's heard that they are finally responding to him. But notice, and I think this is so key. This is, this is what I learned from this passage this week, you know, probably first and foremost. Paul will not allow this offense to be about him. Paul will not allow this offense to be about him. He is more concerned for the church and he is more concerned for the offender than he is for his own personal offense. That today is shocking because there are whole industries. We live in a world with whole industries built around outrage. 
You can, you can go online anytime and you can see people being outraged. It's outraged. It's like their brand. It's what they're doing. They're outraged all the time. Social media thrives off of people venting their outrage. Outrage. I don't keep saying outreach. Um, outrage. And it's, it's the perfect tool. The internet is the perfect tool to let everybody know this is about what that person did to me. And the goal of outrage is vengeance. It is, it is to get your pound of flesh. No one is looking for restoration. Y'all, the heroes of our world today are selfish people. The heroes of our world are the people who stand up and say, I did what's best for me. And everybody says, you go. That's right. Do what's best for you. And I think many Christians are taking their cues from what they read on social media and, 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 and in, in media outlets than they are from Christ. Because most churches aren't interested in dealing with sin biblically, but even the ones who do, they take more notes from the culture and make it more personal. And Paul won't have it. He is not going to use this offense as an opportunity for self-pity. And he doesn't want them feeling pity for him either. Because that's what a lot of people do. A lot of people, because, because we're so self-focused, we get offended and we see it as an opportunity to draw attention to ourselves by getting people to pity us. But really, it's supposed to be about restoring peace. And, and, and specifically within the body, okay? Our goal is to restore peace in our midst and to restore the brother and ultimately through that to bring glory to Christ. So for a Christian, being offended shouldn't be an opportunity to engage in self-pity or seek personal vengeance. Uh, being offended is a chance to seek peace and restoration. It is suffering like Christ for his sake. And so Paul is saying, this isn't about me. This isn't about the pain I've experienced. This is about Christ and his church. Job, when he suffered, had the opportunity to put God on display because he made it less about him and, and more, about, more about his creator. That's, that's what I always say when we talk about Job. Your suffering may be an opportunity for the whole, remember how the, the angels were watching Job to see what he did? God says, consider my servant Job. So it's this big this big game between God and Satan and everybody's waiting to see what Job does so it's this cosmic display well what if your offense is a, is a cosmic opportunity for you to put Christ on display what, what if God has in effect said what if Satan has come and said you know have you considered my, my servant David and, and, and God says yeah you know I I like David. And Satan says, yeah, well, he wouldn't worship you anymore if he got real offended by somebody. And God says, okay, let's see. Have at it. What, what, what if we're in that position where we're literally the angels are waiting to see, okay, what, what is David Cleland going to do in this situation? Is he going to seek peace and bring glory to God or is he going to seek pity and, and desire things to be brought to himself? And so when we localize our sin, when we make it about bitterness and hurt, we forfeit our opportunity to live like Christ commanded us. We, we've looked at this verse a couple of times. I'm, I'm going to keep hammering this. Blessed 
Happy, happy, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's a family resemblance. This is is an adoption statement. It is, we have been adopted by God. We will be called sons of God because we are taking on the resemblance of God because God is a peacemaker. What does Jesus say on the cross? Does he say, Father, let them have it? No, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Remember a few weeks ago, we discovered that suffering, it isn't really about us. You know, your suffering's not for you. Well, here's, here's the thing. Our offense isn't about us either. It's about Christ. And it's about what we're going to do with that opportunity. And we're responsible to forgive others as we've been forgiven. All right, which leads then to the second point, which is this, verse six. Resist the urge to heap on vengeance. Resist the urge to heap on vengeance. Verse six, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And so, you know, I mean, there's nothing. I'm not laying anything out here. Y'all don't know. The, the temptation when we're offended is to seek vengeance. I want my, prou- my pound of flesh. When somebody hurts me, it becomes personal. I want to make that person pay. Sometimes when somebody hurts somebody I love, I want to see that person pay. And so some in the church probably would have liked for this person to pay on Paul's behalf. And Paul is saying to them, y'all need to quit piling on. You need to quit piling on these guys. And this is very important. God does not call us to bring vengeance on sinners. The church is not here to wield a sword. Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's, res- Paul, Paul's response here to the Corinthians is entirely consistent with that command. We don't fight back by harming others. We fight back by laying down our lives for their sake. And so we are to be peacemakers, not vengeance seekers. James 3, 17 and 18. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you are a peacemaker, you will be sowing a harvest of righteousness, which means this, back to to church discipline. The goal of church discipline is never penalty. We are not trying to penalize a person. It isn't an outburst of anger towards them. Oh yeah, you get out. You have you've really done it now. You get out. It's an expression of grace and love designed to correct and restore and to cause that person to grow. And heaven forbid we get to the point where we get to that last level of church discipline We do it with heavy hearts as we turn them over because we want to see them restored. But but theory is easier than practice. And if we're honest, we want to see people wearing scarlet letters, right? I mean, that's, that's really, you know, it's like, okay, I've forgiven you, but I feel like you've still got some price to pay. Um, there's a really interesting little side point here, if I may, just for a second. 
Um, again, clearly Paul locates the discipline in the church body. We've talked about this before, but this is another passage. He says, he says the punishment by the majority is enough. So whatever the church decided, the church decided to do, the majority of the church, Paul is saying that was what, what we decided together, that is enough. Okay, not elders, not presbytery, not a denomination. The punishment was decided by the majority. And now that he has repented, it is the responsibility of the congregation to restore him. Okay, which brings us to point number three, verses seven and eight. Remember that the goal is restoration. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may well be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You know, the worst thing that can happen to a Christian brother or sister is that he be removed from fellowship within a church, all right? So Jesus says that the unrepentant brother or sister should be treated as a a Gentile or a tax collector. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 regarding another church discipline situation, he speaks of handing such a one over to Satan in the hopes that he will return. Okay, which, which really speaks, you know, those people who say that I can be a Christian but not be in a church, they're living in the place where churches turn people over hoping that they'll return to the church. Okay, so it's a bad position to be in, to be outside of the fellowship of the church. As soon as the brother repents, everything changes. Everything changes immediately. And Paul says, restore that person as fast as possible lest he be overwhelmed by sorrow. That brother who hurt you and repented, it is now your responsibility. There's that word comfort again. It's now your responsibility to comfort that person. All right, so think about what Paul is writing here. Somebody who has hurt him for years, anguish and trouble that this guy is causing Corinth. So this is probably a ringleader of all of that trouble and all of that pain. Paul's loving his enemy. Paul is doing just what Jesus commanded him to do. And he's telling the church of Corinth, don't seek your pound of flesh. You welcome that person back into your fellowship. And let's just be frank, many churches today, many of us today, if somebody caused a bunch of trouble in here and then he repented, our attitude, I mean, I, I have to be frank, our attitude would be, that's great he repented, but it's probably better for him to move on and seek another fellowship at this point. I just, I mean, that's, that is the way we would think. It's so awkward. There's so much pain associated with this. It's just, let's just, it's easier to not have fellowship than to try to seek to restore fellowship with that guy. Paul is saying, welcome him back. Forgive him, comfort him, reaffirm your love for him. This is so contrary to the wisdom of the world, but it's such light to the world and it demonstrates the love of Christ. Think about the prodigal son. It, we, we can't be presenting a God who forgives, but is like, I'm so, I'm just so, so disappointed in you. Because that's, that's not the picture of the father that we see in the scripture. We see the picture of the father who is anxiously waiting for the son to return, who is looking out and when he sees him, runs to meet him, shortens the distance by running towards him. God is, he's the one who's, he's like the, the, the one who goes and looks for the sheep. He's like the one who goes and sweeps his house so that he can find the one single 
lost coin. That's what God is like. And hear me. So this is, this is a big takeaway here. We must, by the grace of God, see sin as an opportunity for restoration and not for retribution. It is an opportunity to put the grace of God on display. It is to show the love that Christ has shown us because while we were still sinners, he died for us. And so we model that for him. Number four, we respond with complete forgiveness. Verses nine and 10. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So the word forgive has already been in this passage, and I've kind of skipped it up until this point. It is clearly central to everything that we are in Christ. Y'all, what I said earlier, if we're going to be a church that is obedient to Christ's commands, then we must be a church that actively practices restoration and forgiveness and we must be willing to move beyond theory to practice we can't just sit around and talk about this we have to actually do it and we talk about forgiveness like we can probably all right now unless unless there's something in your mind we can talk about forgiveness right now oh yeah that's easy i i think about peter uh in matthew 18 lord how many how many times should i forgive seven he's like seven jesus is like no seven seventy times seven Lord, Lord, I will go the extra mile. I will forgive seven times. And Jesus won't have it. And he just blows it up. He blows up our abstract discussions about forgiveness. And I'm sure I could go around the room right now and we would all affirm the importance of forgiveness. We could probably talk about its beauty and how we've experienced it. But all of that changes the moment we are called to actually forgive Okay, so yeah, I, if you've never read The Hiding Place by, by Corey Tim Boom, it's, it's an excellent book, and it, it is so much. I learned so much about faith and forgiveness from her. Um, I would highly recommend it. If you have older children, I would recommend that you read it with them. Uh, I've used this little account in other contexts. You may have heard it before, but I think it just so perfectly illustrates what we're talking about here in terms of forgiveness and how hard it is when you're confronted with true offense. So, so Corey Ten Boom was a Christian in the Netherlands. Her father was a watchmaker. They hid Jews in their home. And when they were discovered, Corey and her father and her sister were sent to a concentration camp where her sister Betsy died. Betsy died 15 days before Corey was released. And before she died, Corey, uh, Betsy told Corey, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. So years later, Corey comes back to Germany. And she's speaking on the power of forgiveness. And she said that when she had finished the talk, everyone got up in silence and they were kind of just leaving the room. And then let me, I'm going to read this. This is from her. It's a little bit of an extended quote here, but you know where I'm going with this. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with the harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. 
And I, who had spoken so glibly on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who, has injured, who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood still there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I think this is such a powerful statement of forgiveness because it makes us think about the actual practice of forgiveness. Corey Ten Boom's experience with that guard is as real as it gets. And so forgiving that concentration guard as he stood there could not be done in her own strength. It requires that new life. It requires the new heart that only Jesus can give. It requires this, this power of the spirit. And you know what? You've heard that phrase, forgive and forget. I do not believe that forgive and forget is a biblical idea. That's impossible. We're human beings. We have memories. We know what has happened to us. We don't forget those things. We're human. I can't erase my memories. But listen to how God describes forgiveness. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here's what, here's it. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. God chooses not to remember. And I believe there's a difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. Because I can choose to dwell on an offense 
I can lay in bed at night and think about the people who have hurt me. That is an active choice, or I can choose not to dwell on that offense. And I think that's why Paul, in this passage, he speaks of being obedient to forgive. When I forgive a sinning brother, and then I go back and choose to remember that sin, I'm being disobedient. It is a matter of obedience for me to forgive and then to choose not to continue to bring that up. Forgiveness is a painful thing. The forgiveness that we receive from God comes at great cost. It came at the cost of his son, of the blood of his son shed so that we can be forgiven. Our forgiveness required death. When someone asks for forgiveness and we grant it, we are saying we are willing to die. I am willing to take the pain on myself. I am willing to bear the pain of what you have done and not continue to bring it up. I am dying to the part of me that demands retribution. And it is painful. It is painful to choose not to remember when someone has hurt us. And y'all remember, this is not a cold instruction manual. Paul is going through this as he writes to us. Paul has chosen to be at peace with this brother who has repented. Which brings us to the final thought here, and that is this. Remain firm in your fight against Satan. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a little bit of an odd way to finish here. So that, would, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. The New American Standard says we are not, I'm sorry, we, the, the, this one says we are not ignorant of his designs. The New American Standard says we are not, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Y'all, I don't think that, that Satan has a very big toolbox when it comes to tempting human beings. And that's not to say that he's a simpleton. It's to say that it's just really not that hard to tempt us. So it says more about us than it does about Satan. But Paul says we're not in the dark regarding his schemes. We know what he's up to. In the garden, he did two things. He questioned God. Did God really say? And he offered them the opportunity to be like God. So, you know, two things. is Did God really say? And wouldn't you like to be more like God? Let's make this more about you. Satan wants me to make this about me. He wants me to stop worshiping God and start worshiping me. That's his scheme. That's what he's trying to do. And when we're eaten up by offense and bitterness and resentment, we're allowing ourselves to be outwitted by Satan because we're making it all about us. And, and, and at Hope Bible Church, when we get focused on us, we're being outwitted by Satan. And you know, to focus on me, it just feels so right. It feels so good, and it's so destructive. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. Satan wants to isolate, and there's nothing that isolates better than bitterness and resentment. So let's not be so foolish as to ignore this teaching. Hear hear what Paul is saying here. We are not ignorant of Satan and his schemes. So don't show up at the fast food restaurant of resentment and throw off everything that you've known because you're mad and it just feels right. Satan wants to destroy us by pushing us to dwell on offenses, but God can transform those offenses and make them into a marvelous 
display of his power and glory when we obey him. Y'all, the world, they can produce a way better show than this. They can produce better community. They got really good community with each other. And, and you know what? They're, they're all sleeping in on Sundays and then going to, I don't know, I'm not the beach right now, today. I don't know what they're doing. Sitting there, still in their jammies, I guess. But the way we're going to put Christ on display to the world is ways like this that can't be explained in any other way except the glory of God and the work that he's done in us. They will be intrigued when we don't exact vengeance. So, three points of conclusion. Number one, don't waste your offense. Your offense isn't yours. It belongs to God. Um, We can talk all day about forgiveness, but we must practice it. Number two, quickly, a couple of practical implications. So obviously this is, this is church-wide. We're talking church discipline stuff here. But the purpose of forgiveness is so important every day in all of our human conflicts, marriage, family, work, etc. When we refuse to forgive, we are, we are asking for our pound of flesh. So, so the question is, how do you respond to your spouse when your spouse says, he or she is, she is sorry. How do you respond to your children when they say they're sorry? Do you grant forgiveness, but do your actions indicate that you're still seeking vengeance? So do you grant forgiveness, but then you say, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going I'm I'm to keep bringing it up. Do you continue to burn on the inside, wishing that you hadn't forgiven so quickly? Does God, our Father, against whom we have sinned infinitely, continue to punish us once we have sought forgiveness? And and I do think relationally, the more that we are quick to ask forgiveness and to grant it, we will find much more peace in our homes. So we are commanded by Christ to take up our cross daily, and we we have to live with others, constantly be willing to, to die to our offense. And, you know, to be frank with you, I think many of us could stop being offended so easily to begin with and and stop being so willing to take offense on ourselves. If you're living in resentment from some past offense, I would encourage you to stop allowing yourself to be trapped by the schemes of Satan. He has you just where he wants you, alone, fruitless, and inactive. But there is help, and there there are others who can help you. They can lead you out of this dark place. Teenagers, specifically, don't allow Satan to tempt you to live in resentment with your parents and with your friends. I am more and more convinced that social media is a lie. I got off Twitter on Friday. I just can't take it anymore. I I just do not need to see every thought that everybody is thinking all the time publicly. It's awful. And it is, I, I see it's leading me to a dark place in my soul and it's building resentment in me. You guys, this culture of outrage that we're living in is a pit. Don't be sucked into it. Live among your friends. I'm still talking to teenagers, but to all of us. Live among your friends in such a way that refuses to be caught up in that mess and demonstrate Christ by being the person who is willing to forgive and is too slow to get angry. So finally, we're going to turn to the Lord's table. And uh, if you're, if you're going to be passing out the Lord's Supper, if you'll, if you'll go and, and grab those right now. Let me, just, 
Let me just say this. This is such an easy transition here for us today. Um, throughout the whole Bible, forgiveness, I, it always comes by grace through faith. This idea that in the Old Testament, people were saved by following the law. That's not true. Those are from people that don't read the Old Testament. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God responded with a promise and a covering. He promised a redeemer would come, and then he killed an animal and he provided clothes for them. So from the very beginning, we see that forgiveness necessitated a death. So in the, in the sacrificial system, the blood shed for sins was that lamb. And you would, you would go and you would put your hand on the head of that lamb and you would lean on that lamb as the, as the priest slit its throat so that you would literally fall over as the life was going out of the lamb so that you could, you could have a sense of, of, of putting yourself onto that lamb. But it was always a death. Forgiveness requires a death. And it was always inadequate. The, the blood of bulls and goats was not adequate to take away sin. So it had to be repeated over and over again. So when John the Baptist shows up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we see the initiation of this plan of God that is going to provide a sacrifice that will be once and for all. But it's still a death. It's a death necessary for forgiveness. And so when Jesus hands that cup to his, his young disciples, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This, this is a new heart. What comes with the new covenant? Forgiveness of sins, a new heart, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, life with God. And so as we take this cup and this, this, this piece of cracker in just a few minutes, we are preaching and we are preaching to the world about Jesus' death and about forgiveness until he comes. And that death is the same death that he calls us to die every day for his sake, that we die to ourselves. Forgiveness requires death. We die to ourselves so that others might live. So as you do this now, as we wait and we'll do it together, but as you're thinking about this, as you're receiving the cup, and, and, the, and the bread, think about this. Think about these things that we are preaching forgiveness by, by taking a part in this little meal right now. All right, y'all go ahead. <laughs>